Welcome. You're listening to a Mr. Thrive Media production. Angela Lee, author of the Bella Santini series, come to this podcast to discuss mental health and how it impacts her work in children's books. Her focus with children makes this even more of a delicate line of dialogue. And for that, I have nothing but respect for Angela's work. I think after listening to this amazing, heartfelt episode, you may feel the same way. I also want you to know that there is not going to be a networking event this month. We want you guys to enjoy the holidays and also to stay warm and enjoy your gifts. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. You have stumbled upon the Mr. Thrive Podcast, where together we discover established artists like author Angela Lee. Angela, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Oh, gosh. I am so, so pleased to be chatting with you today. Yes. And and you are calling from, remind me, from which state again? New Mexico. New Mexico. Right. A wonderful town. Right. Lovely, lovely area. And unfortunately, the only perception that most people have of New Mexico is what Breaking Bad gave us. But what is your <laughs> what is your perception of, of New Mexico? What does it truly have to offer? Oh, the hiking is amazing. Um, there are wonderful trails into the mountains on the high plains. Um, it's and the Rio Grande Gorge. It's like having a mini um, Grand Canyon right here. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I love yeah. that. And and quite frankly, I think the Grand Canyon is just too big anyway. So that that makes me happy to hear knowing that uh, there's a miniature version of it where I can really get the full experience of it in, in a shorter <laughs> period of time. So that's really good for me to hear. Um, okay, well, you're going to have to visit. <laughs> so, so Angela, you are an author. Uh, you've written both, uh, you know, I guess novels and children's books. Is that correct? Actually, I've written self-help books for adults, and, and, and those were kind of the compilation books where many authors get together and, and each do a chapter. And so I did four or five of those. My chapters would be about self-forgiveness or emotional management, or the one that really sticks with me is surrender to what is (laughs) and we're going to uncover a lot more of what that means very soon but before we really get into what your message is which is really about mental health and you know really that that focus that you have for improving the livelihoods of both adults and children we're going to start this episode with our season three warm-up trivia are you ready I am so ready. Yes. Yes. I love the energy. For those who do not know, in the third season of this podcast, what we're doing is we are doing three trivia questions on a topic that our guest is passionate about. And I did the research on children's books because there is a lot of interesting facts, factoids out there uh, about the world of children's books. And so I found three things. I'm very curious how much Angela knows. Angela, these are <laughs> these are multiple choice questions, and I know you're going to knock it out of the park, Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. Question one. When Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Peter Rabbit was rejected, how did Potter go about publishing her book? Was it A, she went to an American publisher instead? B, it was never professionally published until after her death? C, she self-published them? Or D, she included it in an anthology series? (laughs) I know uh, self-publishing wasn't a thing back then, <laughs> and neither were anthology series, really. Um, so I'm guessing that they were released after her death. Oh, actually, it's funny to say that. She actually did self-publish it. Did she? She made 250 wow. copies, and to date has 45 million copies sold. So That's- unfortunately... I'm sorry that Brilliant. in that in that case you were wrong, but she she did make history because you're right. Self publishing at the time was not was not a likely thing to do, but she yeah. did it. Pretty pretty she inspiring. A groundbreaker. Yeah, love that. Really, really was incredible. Question two: Harry Potter books were the first children's books on the New York Times bestseller list since A. Charlotte's Web, B. Alice in Wonderland, C. Winnie the Pooh, or D, The Hobbit? Oh, God, those are all such good books. I know, I know. <laughs> the 
this really is trivia because none of my research included any of this. But um, I can tell you that in the first year that Harry Potter was released, J.K. Rowling only sold a thousand books. I did not know that. Yeah. So yeah, that was um, good news for me. Right. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm gonna guess on this one also, and. I'm going to say Char Charlotte's Web. Correct. Nicely done. That was great. Yeah, Charlotte's Web, classic. Gotta love. Loved it. Gotta yeah. love Charlotte. Gotta love our spider. Um, gotta <laughs> love that barn. But yeah, great guess for sure. So, question three. This one, I this question I actually find the most interesting. Okay, so, so hear me out. Okay. Okay. What was the original email domain that Garfield Comics used to reply to fans? Was it A, at Garfield.com, B, at CatLovers.com, C, at Lasagna.com, D, or D, at Gmail.com? I think it's at Lasagna.com. Mm, see, that would be cute, but it actually, so here's the, here's the crazy thing. It was actually at Gmail.com. And then in 2004, Google had bought that domain from Garfield Comics uh, because they wanted to use Gmail. And now, I mean, as a proponent no of that, way. yeah, they were the original ones to have created gmail.com. Google bought them. <laughs> and now Google has at gmail.com, which is what my personal email is. It's an at gmail.com email. Um, isn't that wild, Very though? Cool. That's wild. Yeah. So I found that super interesting. And so Gmail was originally Garfield Mail as opposed to Google Mail. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I wonder if they, if Google had ever tried to like work around it, like, oh man, we we can't do it now. Maybe we can do, um, you know, maybe we can do Google Mail. I don't know. Like they they probably they probably threw around some ideas uh, before they went about buying Gmail.com from Garfield. But isn't that the crazy? whole domain thing is really interesting because I originally released my book on Wattpad to start building readership. And I didn't know at the time that as soon as I put it on Wattpad, I should have like bought a whole bunch of domains associated with my book. Because when I went to set up a website for my book series, it was like the name was already taken. <laughs> and I, I ended up messaging the people in there like, well, we'll sell it to you for $29,000. And I said, no, I'll just change the name. So instead of it was going to be um, something like Bella Santini series, it turned into Chronicles. And so <laughs> I now have the domain. <laughs> Wow, look at that. <laughs> so you can relate then, is what you're saying. I, mm -hmm. I, I think that's I think that's so interesting. Uh, not to mention not to mention anything to regarding trademarks and, and any kind of name that <laughs> comes about. I, what, one thing I want to shift gears and talk about here is is really the focus of your of your books. Um, it's very much about EQ. It's very much about um, understanding the importance of feeling feelings. Yes. And letting yourself experience these emotions. Can can we talk about that for a little bit? As we in for this can. entire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly can. Um, so there's like a couple of main themes in the books. One is that love is the answer for everything. And another is the importance of feeling all your feelings. And then the third theme is hey, you are made of magic, which I believe everyone is magic. And we'll, we can talk more about that um, because the feelings part is so important. I was on, on a podcast yesterday with a nutritionist and, you know, what would a children's author be doing with a nutritionist? But there's this whole component of emotional eating where we're stressed and we reach for the cookies, we reach for the ice cream or the cake or, you know, whatever. And, and we find comfort from our stress in that kind of emotional eating. Really what I teach is rather than trying to escape the feeling, 
if we can just allow the feeling to be, it, it, it's energy and so it flows. So the only reason a feeling sticks with us is if we grab onto it and our mind grasps the concept of the feeling. So I'll give you an example because it's easier to understand that way. A feeling is energy. Energy comes in waves. So that's what a feeling does. It comes in waves. With grief, grief is a very heavy feeling that we, you know, if, if a good friend of yours died and you were scheduled to do this podcast, you might tell yourself, I have to do the podcast. And so you would show up and you wouldn't allow yourself to feel the grief because you had to be at work. You had to get this thing done. I was talking to another podcaster who was in that situation. And I just said, hey, you know, these things are editable. You can take five minutes and go in another room and cry if you need to. And just giving herself the permission to, hey, it's okay if I need to pull out and experience my feeling was enough that she could do the whole podcast without issues. And that's the thing. We don't give ourselves permission to feel our own feelings. And it's so important to let ourselves feel these things. First of all, that's pretty, it's pretty amazing that you kind of, I would say for for lack of a better term, took charge in a healthy way and made the, the healthy recommendation of giving that person the time to really feel what they were feeling. I've experienced it so many times in my life where people have told me to repress my sensitivity. Mm. I, I'm, a sen- I'm a sensitive person, you know? I, I, I'm an mm-hmm. only child. I didn't have uh, brothers or sisters to give me a thick skin, so I'm a sensitive person, <laughs> you know? You know, more often than not, we are told to repress our feelings. This is why I see a therapist. This is why I think everyone should, should go and seek uh, mental health help in whatever capacity they're seeking it. Yeah. So when you think of the way society suggests a a little boy shouldn't cry, shouldn't be sensitive, they're supposed to, you know, be manly. And with little girls, we were told, you know, you're supposed to be nice. You can't get mad. And these rules, societal rules are very harmful <laughs> to, to little kid. Be, what happens with emotions is if we repress them, if we push it away, the energy cannot flow. And so it stays with us. It becomes embedded in our cellular structure. Eventually, after repression, 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 it can build up into dis- ease, which is unease. And then as you do more and more, it can change your cells enough that you actually get disease. Um, So illness. So not only for your emotional health and happiness, but for your physical health, it's really important for you to feel all of your feelings. Now, that's a really high level concept for a child to understand. How do you translate that to be understandable from a child's perspective reading one of your books? So, well, in the books, it's children discussing the, these things. And so it, it helps. One of the chapters in the books, the main character and her compatriot end up in an alternative dimension. And that dimension is peopled by emotions. So there are no physical beings, just the energy of emotions. And as they're walking down a hallway, sadness crashes in on them. And they are like drawn down into this deep well of despair. And they have to discuss amongst themselves, you know, how are they going to get out of this? When they get back to the reality that they were living in, their other friends ask them what happened and they get into a discussion about different tools to manage emotions. 
I mean, it's it's still so much to to understand, and, and I'm sure there's also visuals that go along with this to help. Oh well, yeah, we have pictures. Sure, sure. <laughs> who who does the illustrations in your book? I just changed illustrators because I have a new publisher, and so um, right now uh, Aubrey Foster is doing them, and she's out of Texas, and um, Whitney Nixon did the last two books. And the first illustrator was my friend Haricha Parth Nilwar over in India. So wow, it's it's been a journey. It really has <laughs> been. It really has been. And and I mean, what what an interesting concept. How many how many children's books actually actually talk about interdimensional travel? <laughs> I think the sci-fi's do. The sci-fi's <laughs> do. Sure. I mean, technically, I guess speaking right now, like. Um, the, Fan- the Phantom Tollbooth, right? Isn't that an interdimensional? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great the, book. The Phantom Tollbooth. That's a that's a interdimensional story, I suppose, and also Narnia, I guess, as well. I'm realizing now, like all these different interdimensional children's stories. Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. You know, I and when I the first my my first thought when I hear interdimensional travel is Rick and Morty, which is by no means <laughs> a children's story at all. That's a that's a whole entire series about. It's 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 about nihilism. It's about uh, cynicism, and it's about you know it, it's it's a whole entire show about being an anti-government nihilist, basically. You know, so it's so it's totally not a children's story at all. But that's what I think of when I think of interdimensional travel nowadays. And I forgot that all the children's books were originally those as well. Yeah, I mean, even James and the Giant Peach is, in a way, interdimensional travel. I guess so. So Winnie the Pooh is as well, isn't it? Right? Doesn't doesn't Christopher Robin go through a tree? Well, I guess the Hundred Acre Wood could be another dimension. But I I don't recall specifically anything that made me think interdimensional travel there. Right, right. What was what's what's one of the big influences that impacts your writing style? Mm. I would say J.R.R. Tolkien. So The Hobbit and The Silmarillion and, you know, all, Lord, all of those books. Um, when I was in second grade, our teacher would gather us in the back of the classroom. There was a couch and we, she would read us The Hobbit. And that just awoken within me this, this magical world that <laughs> now I get to live in. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's wonderful. It's funny that you mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien. There was that article that I read that helped me get the trivia questions for this episode. Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the factoids in there that I couldn't quite figure out how to turn to a trivia question was the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien's son was enlisted in World War One, and while he was enlisted in World War One, his father began to pick up fame, and this was before he had published The Hobbit or the or, or uh, Lord of the Rings, and so the way that his son famously described his father's writing style was pretty wizard but he this was before lord of the rings of the hobbit came out and so it just just a little fun factoid that i had to throw in there that his son would say that his father's writing was wizard before like any that. of that came out <laughs> isn't that funny that is really funny and um two of the reviews of my books were quite i don't know just they made me so happy one was this writing style reminds me of Tolkien. <laughs> that, that, the biggest yeah, compliment like, you could receive. Wow. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> and then another, a friend of mine wrote that when she sat down with her 11 year old son to read my book, that she was transported back to the first time she read Harry Potter to her son when he was still in her baby, her belly. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. That's incredibly cool. So so there is science fiction in your stories. There is fantasy in your stories. But it's all with the focus of mental health and emotional understanding. Uh, again, these are topics that are so underestimated, undervalued these days. Um, but yet we're also, you know, seeing a lot more practice of it, too. I, I've been hearing something coined more and more lately. Tell me if you agree with this and that, you know, of course, we just survived this pandemic of COVID-19, mm-hmm. or at least we're coming out of it 
kind of right now. I, I would say we have one foot in this pandemic, one foot out of the pandemic. We're not really sure as a, as a world, as, a, as an entire uh, species on earth, how we're handling the pandemic because we don't have one uniform way of handling it, right? But one thing I've been hearing a lot more lately is that the, there's a bigger pandemic and that is the pandemic of uh, mental health and anxiety and depression. When you think of what the lockdown did, it took people out of social interaction and made them be at home with themselves. You know, for those who were with families, they were home only with the families. And, you know, we've all been with our family for a holiday meal. And it, by the end of the night, we're like, okay, I'm ready to get out of here. Right, right, right. Or the, or the classic Thanksgiving scenario where you're seeing the relatives that you never see. And now they're bringing up uh, things you don't want them to say, uh, politics, exactly. racism. And you're like, oh, God, get me away. Get me off this table. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I actually lived alone in England when lockdown first happened. And so it was like, all of a sudden, you're not going to have any social contact at all. And that was like, I'm going to die if I don't have social contact. So I set up, um, tea. I was in England. So I set up web meetings for tea so that we could get together and have a little bit of social interaction. And um, what I was going to say is that the outcome of that for, for kids, you know, they're, they're ripped out of their environment. The rug is pulled out from under them and they're, they're at home. And at first it was probably kind of exciting, but, later on their loneliness and separation sets in and so the um i read on npr that emergency rooms were seeing a 33 percent increase in child suicide attempts yeah and the cdc in 2019 said that Suicide was the second leading cause of death for youths aged 10 to 24. And they also said 3,700 kids every day try to attempt suicide. I understand because of the life that I lived through, <laughs> endured, um, I understand that what lies underneath suicide, substance abuse, and self-harming is escaping painful feelings. They just want the pain to stop. And because no one taught any of us the tools that we can use to be with our painful feelings, they look at the only options they have available. And it's um it's heartbreaking because I mean, we don't need it because we already know it's heartbreaking. But what what I'm what I'm yeah, we, we know why it's heartbreaking, but what what I'm what I'm what I'm kinda getting at is just that, you know, I, I think I think everyone if you're a human being on earth, you've had some experience with struggle. And if you're here yep. today, it's because of luck or privilege. Um, quite frankly. And I, I think that I'm I think that I'm here in many ways because of my privilege uh, as a white person who was born in the the suburbs. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had the resources to get uh, help with with mental health, you know, plenty yeah. of times I'm out throughout my life. You know, you know, I was uh, a dependent on my parents insurance for a long time. I was also like in elementary school when I struggled to make friends with people. You know, I'd see a counselor because they had that kind of thing at my elementary school. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, it's yeah. great. But that's a privilege because not but every school has. Wouldn't it have been even better if they like taught in the classroom? Hey, the <sighs> okay, I'm gonna just say this out loud. Yeah, say it. Emotions are part of us. They are. We are whole people. We have emotions. Why is it that 
mathematics and science and reading, why take precedence over who we are, all of them? So, you know, schools do not, some schools have started teaching emotional management. It's um, a program that I'm really like happy to hear is going. That's incredible. But, yeah, it, it's really, it needs to be part of the school. If you were a kid who was shy and having trouble connecting, then that could have been something that was taught to you about, you know, what shyness is, it is fear and fear is an emotion. Uh, that, that makes perfect sense to me, you know, and it, it makes sense that, you know, there should be some sense of education reform. I think that education should be reformed regardless since we're basing our current education system on the industrial age, preparing children for child labor at the time when child labor was okay. That's very much what our education system is based on today. So I'm a big believer in educational reform because we're past that today. And it only teaches one educational style when really there are multiple educational styles out there. For example... Absolutely. For, for example, I'm a kinetic learner, so it, it's it's incredibly helpful for me uh, to be able to uh, interact with the thing that I am working with and kind of do trial and error until it becomes uh, success, right? But they only teach you lecture style audio learning or, exactly. or, or visual learning a little bit with the whiteboard or the chalkboard or whatever. Yeah, the, the whiteboard in front of the class. My son came home from school in... I think third or fourth grade. And he was really bummed out. I'm like, what's wrong? And he said, they're trying to teach me fractions and I'm not getting it. I was like, no problem. Huh. We've got this. Right. And I grabbed a bag of M&Ms. It was like one of the big pound bags. I ripped it all the way open and I poured all the M&Ms on the counter. Oh, I love that. And then I said, okay, here are four green ones. This is one whole group of four green ones. Eat this one. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many are in the group? Three. That's three-fourths of the whole, isn't it? Right. Beautiful. I love that. That's so great. And so we played with the M&Ms until he got fractions. Right. As opposed to someone writing in the front of the class and talking. Oh, that's wonderful. He was able to touch... He was able to move them around. He tasted them. They smell good. <laughs> you know, so many of his senses were involved in that lesson. And if only schools could teach at least some of the time in that way. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that going back to the emotional intelligence aspect of it, I heard of this program that I think you're going to love. Uh this program that some teachers are doing, I think, independently, or some schools are actually adopting officially, where the teacher will do something uh, describing what emotional baggage is. And they'll ask the children, like, what mm. is what is emotional baggage? And they'll kind of eventually loosely uh, define it. And then what the teacher will have everyone do is write down a piece of emotional baggage in their personal life on a piece of paper anonymously. So they're not writing mm -hmm. their name. And everyone is blindly submitting it into a literal bag in front of the class. And now all, you know, you fill up the bag with this, you know, literal emotional baggage full of anonymous things that are happening in people's lives. And now every student is going in and picking out um, a, a, a random, a random, a random piece of paper out of the bag and they'll read it to the class and they will read someone else's emotional baggage without knowing who it is. So mm. it's a really great program to help spread awareness about the kind of compassion that really should be brought to the classroom and to the school environment from that fellow kids themselves so they can understand what is going on in their different friends' lives. And so like you hear about like these bullies that are suddenly transforming into better people because of this. Ah, uh, well, I have a whole theory on that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I would love to hear the theory about bullies. Oh, yeah. Okay. So first off, hurt people hurt people. So whether or not, you know, it was that the child who's a bully was mistreated at home or not, maybe it could have been a neighbor. Maybe it, I don't know how, how they came to this, but they learned that 
power and control are the way to feel special. And so they go out and they try and exert power and control. But those are qualities of good leaders. <laughs> so what I believe is many of the qualities of a bully are indicator of good leaders. What they miss is the empathy. And a, a program like what you talked about is very powerful in bringing in some empathy and compassion. And my friend, um, Grandma Helice Sparky, Grandma Sparky, she is well known in the San Diego area for <laughs> bringing the Blue Ribbon organization. And what she does is she asks people to pin a blue ribbon, you make a difference. And what she's found is that many of the bullies um, will come up because when she has in-school um, programs, she has people come up and talk about how they were treated and what's happened to them. And in as the bullies listen and hear the effects of their treatment on other people, they now have more empathy. And so it's really turned some kids around her program. It's amazing. I think that's so wonderfully displayed. I, I know Grandma Sparky from the C-Suite Network. I actually did not know that's what she was known for. Um, so that's really great for me to know about. For those who don't know, uh, my company is affiliated with the C-Suite Network. That's actually where we stream our podcast through, through the C-Suite Network. Um, so hearing that and having networked with her before, uh, she is a wonderful influence, such a positive person. She is person. a lovely She really person. is fantastic. I love Grandma Sparky. And apparently she's TikTok viral as well. That's that. That was what I thought she was viral for, was just for being uh, TikTok famous. I was like, oh, cool. But she actually has a good impact then on uh, uh, the education. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. That really is incredible. Yeah, she's, she's got, got this little book, book Who I Am Makes, makes a Difference. Oh, uh, wonderful. Great, great title. The Power of Acknowledgement. Very yep. cool. Very cool. I would like to add one thing about leadership that I, you pretty much you pretty much said, but I want to shift the gear just a little bit, at least to reflect at least my leadership style. At least I'd like to think is my leadership style, and that is that I think listening is such a big factor in this as well. Um, when you're a leader, you know you can either be um, a boss or you can be a leader, and a boss is just someone who barks orders at you all day, and Correct. you know. You never want to have a boss that breathes down your neck. As a matter of fact, you know, the reason why I was motivated to build my own business and to do what I do is because I was tired of only landing jobs with bosses. I didn't have any jobs with leaders. Uh, actually, I will take that back. The last job I ever had ever was a job with a, a leader. And her name was Risa, and she was a lovely person. And, and also under Risa was Michael. And Michael was also a lovely person at the PJ Library, which you would love, <laughs> Angela, which is that Jewish children's uh, book uh, subscription service. You would love that service. I would love that service. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, really, it's a really fantastic nonprofit, and I used to work for them. They were leaders because they listened. They heard me, and I communicated with them regularly. And I, they helped me become an asset. They gave me the resource I, need, I needed to be an asset within that nonprofit. Um, but that was the first job that ever respected me. And that was the first job that ever listened to me. And they helped mold the professional I am today uh, in a lot of ways. So I think listening is just such a major part of that. And people do not, I find more often than not, people don't know how to listen. And it blows me away. It, it, Absolutely. Yeah. And part of listening is respect. When you think about you know, you're, you're the boss and you're hiring someone, you're looking at their application and you're looking at all their skills. You hire them because you, you think their skills are a good match. They're going to be able to do the job. Now it's time for you as the boss to have the respect for them and their skills <laughs> and allow them to do the job. It's almost like allowing your emotions. You just, people will live up or down to whatever expectations there are. And that's true for children and adults. 
And so when, as, as a leader, as a boss, when we have the expectation that, um, hey, I hired you for your skills, I trust that you're going to work those skills. I love that. And I have so many thoughts on that. Hey, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And before we do that, I want to emphasize the fact that because of this pandemic, Mr. Thrive Media realized that we need to do a better job at supporting small business wherever we can. So enjoy. Hey, Thrivers, do you hear a certain difference in quality? That's because this podcast quality is made possible by Squadcast. Virtual recordings have become easier than ever with Squadcast Studio Quality SaaS remote recording platform. This cloud-based technology secures your files and minimizes post-production for all podcast producers. And I should know because I am one. Heighten the experience of your podcast by clicking the link in the show notes below. This podcast is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Mr. Thrive Media builds communities through its content marketing and networking events. During this pandemic, our dedicated team commits to the value of connection by producing podcast content while extending a helping hand towards artists and entertainment professionals. Mr. Thrive Media puts its values first by supporting small businesses and empowering emerging artists. For more information, visit www.mrthrive.com. That's mrthrive.com. And we're back. Thanks for, you know, just being on the show again. It's been, it's just, it's really a pleasure to have you and talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about also your, kind of, a little bit of your backstory as well, because I, from what I understand from the first time we met, <laughs> you, you've, you've done some worldly travels. You mentioned earlier, you've been in England, but where were you born? Where'd that start? I was born in San Francisco, California. Ah, uh, San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And to make it even more colorful, I was born in 1964 in the Haight-Ashbury district. And oh. I lived there until 1970. So there you go. Sounds like a Summer pretty fun time. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, not not to be stereotypical, but I have to ask, would you have called yourself a hippie at the time? Oh, no. My parents were working class. In okay. fact, Haight-Ashbury, before the hippie invasion, was <laughs> a working class neighborhood. And I so, didn't know that. Okay. So, okay. So oh, a completely yeah. different vibe than what it is today. It, yeah, and it was um, there was a conflict between the working class and the hippie, you know, because my father was um, he was a lot of things. He was a very sensitive young man who was mistreated by his father because he was sensitive, and he was told he was a loser because he didn't live up to whatever his father thought he should be. He grew up and that feeling of being not enough stuck with him. He felt the need to escape it, so he drank. He numbed that feeling with alcohol, but the outcome of that decision was that he was a raging drunk. He was very mean and um, filled with anger. So my father was very judgmental of all the hippies in the neighborhood. <laughs> I remember being two, two or three years old and he took us into an ice cream store and then he ushered us right out yelling, I smell marijuana. And I, I just remember being, this is awful. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, and also different, just completely different attitudes now about marijuana as a whole, just the contrast. I wonder, had the attitudes been different at the time, had that might have had an impact, a, a different impact on, on your family? Well, you know, he he was stuck in the 50s, kind of, you know, dad's the the important one. <laughs> and, um, so I don't, I don't know that even if society in general had a different take on it, if his take... Rage was his go-to, and he was abusive in every way. I learned to repress anger because not only was I a little girl, and little girls are supposed to be sweet and nice, but I looked at my father and I saw a monster, and he was angry. So anger was bad. 
And that was the judgment that I made about anyone who chose to be angry. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty um, impactful for all of my life because what I, I ended up doing was marrying young and I didn't know it at the time because I was like 20 years old. I was too young to be married. Um, he, anger was his go-to emotion. So if you can imagine this toxic relationship where one of us is in judgment of anger and the other is angry almost all the time, how that, you know, I would judge him for being angry and he would get angrier because I was judging him. It's not solid foundation for a marriage. <laughs> yeah. So you married a man that also resorted to anger in a toxic way. Well, yeah. And, and I don't want to, um, it's not like this was a choice he made. He, he grew up in a very abusive household too. And so he was exposed to it. And as a child, this was my comfort zone in his eyes. So for him, anger was how it was supposed to be. For me, anger was bad. And so um, neither one of us had a healthy response to the emotion. So, so um, if, if anger was bad for you, what did you resort to? Mm, I would resort to sadness. I would cry. Mm. That was okay. You know, all the while, I can't help but think of the Pixar movie Inside Out. Hmm. Where I'm thinking of which which of those characters are controlling the the brain headquarters, the brain control room of, yeah. of every Such individual character. Sort you know, concept. it is a great concept. It's it illustrated emotions so beautifully. I think that's one thing that Pixar does uh, just wonderfully is they illustrate mm -hmm. the abstract in such a, a visual way that you know improves their storytelling formula so magically. Um, I love what they do mm -hmm. and. Um, there is right now, I'm really a proponent of their movie. It's a little short called Float. I love and Float. It, oh, God. <laughs> Great story. Do you think that that's oh, a... it's it's beautiful and it's such a, a great allegory for so many aspects of how society is. And, you know, in that movie, the father is afraid that his child will be seen as different. And so he ends up trying to force his child into normalcy. Mm -hmm. By putting all the rocks in his backpack. And so he doesn't float, doesn't yeah, get judged so by all the viewing eyes, of the neighbors and the, and the other parents in the neighborhood. And isn't that such a great allegory for parents who think they're doing the right thing for their child? Yeah when they're actually hurting their child. Absolutely. That 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 short made me tear up. I mean, Pixar Pixar oh, yeah. Pixar knows how to grab you by the emotional heart that you have <laughs> and remind you that you're human. They know how to do I, it. It's kind of cruel, but they they're so good at it too. They're totally manipulators of your emotion and they and they do that to you. I I um many I say 2 years ago, I said if anyone gets to do movies of my books, it's going to be Pixar. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Good. It's good that you hold yourself to that standard because it's true, though, because you do have these incredible stories that are about bringing the abstract of visceral impact that is felt through us through whether it's childhood traumas or, or um, issues that in which we do not know how to handle uh, emotionally as adults and, and bringing them to a literal. Yeah, and so... You know, one of the things that book two really dwells on is emotional triggers. When someone is doing something that causes us to be reactive to it. And the normal human thing is to point the finger and blame and say, he did that. <laughs> That's why I feel this way. <laughs> but what's really true is... We have a matching emotional energy that's stored that rises up 
when we see that behavior. And so we are reactive because we have that matching energy. And when we understand that, then we can start, um, for me, because I had repressed emotion for so much of my life, I ended up having to spend a lot of time letting these emotions out. So it would be, you know, days with the blankets pulled up over my head and I wouldn't get out of bed and I'd punch the pillows and I'd scream and I'd cry and I, you know, just letting some of that energy out of me. And by actually allowing those stored emotions out, then you diminish your reactivity. That's an incredibly healthy way to go about it, it sounds like, so long as you're not causing self-harm or other people harm, right? Right. Yeah. And and in fact, um, in the second book, which is coming out in two weeks, um, there Congratulations. is a revelation. Whoa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, um, there is a revelation for the main character um, that she's not ready to accept. <laughs> and she becomes very angry over um, what she sees as lies and betrayal. And in the book, she smashes a pillow, <laughs> punches a pillow, because the other character is saying, no, you need to let this emotion out and don't, don't hold it in. I'm not going to tell you to stop crying. I'm not going to tell you to stop yelling. This needs to come out. I think that's so beautifully said and, and so beautifully expressed. I It's on my podcast. It's a, it's a special, it's the most recent special on my show. If you guys scroll down to uh, several episodes earlier from this episode, you guys will see that there is uh, an episode called Special uh, Get Angry. Ah. And so I, I actually did uh, a motivational workshop slash speech on the concept of getting angry. Uh, it, you know, I, I talked about the fact that more often than not, like, you know, we hold so many of our emotions internally because we're told to repress them. We're told to hide them, yes. um, but we need to express them. And one thing I explain in my motivational workshop is that whatever you've ever wanted to achieve in your life, you can achieve it. And that these emotions are internally a part of us and will not leave because we're actually supposed to use them to harness the energy needed to get to that next step in your life. You know, that's so interesting and so true. When a crisis or an event happens to you, the way you perceive it, is this going to be an anchor that holds me down? Or is it going to be fuel that spurs me on to make whatever this disservice <laughs> Um, is right. And the people who are successful are the ones who use their adversity as fuel rather than anchor. Beautifully said. And that that is the difference, in my opinion, at least. You tell me if you agree with this. You totally, I want you to disagree with me if you disagree with me. But <laughs> that is the difference between a good person and a bad person is uh, how we handle that that anger. <laughs> here here we're going to disagree. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I don't think that there are any bad people. There are people who have been taught to not value themselves or others. They didn't necessarily arrive that way without having things that taught them that. I believe that every child that is born is a light of love in this earth and that it is society and it is the parents, the preachers, the, and I'm not indicting anyone. <laughs> I think, you know, that, well, okay. The Talmud says we do not see the world as it is. We see it as we are. So the rabbis, the preachers, the parents, the teachers, all were looking through their own filters when they 
taught their child. <laughs> so I, that's one of the tools that I use to teach people. Well, it's like, okay, when you were five year old, five years old, if I had my dad here, I would say, when you were five years old, your dad said that you were a loser. Now let's pick this apart. He didn't see the world as it is. He saw it as he is. What does his statement say about him? And then we can unpack it more. Are you that five-year-old now? No, I'm not. And so when you can turn your, the people criticizing you and say, okay, whatever they're saying about me says more about who they are than it ever says about who I am. That gives you freedom. And, you know, you're able then to take, you could take their words and use them if there's any value to their words that would make your life better. You could choose to use them. But you can also decide there's no value to what they're saying in your life. There's value in their life. You get to make the choice for your life. Angela, I think that's so well articulated and I really appreciate it. The fact that you disagree with me makes me so angry. I want to uh, hit a pillow and scream, um, <laughs> but that is okay. I'll get over it after this interview's over. Well, that's the thing. We, we can give ourselves permission to be in, you know, cause obviously you can't, start slamming a pillow if you're in a high-end restaurant. So you need to leave the restaurant, go home and slam the pillow <laughs> sometimes. Well said. So Angela, if someone listening to this right now wanted to start reading your children's books or even get a hold of you, but to potentially collaborate, what is the best way they can reach out to you? My website, AngelaLee.com. So it's A-N-G-E-L-A-L-E-G-H. Com. Amazing. All that information will be displayed in the show notes of this episode. And finally, Angela, the question I ask everybody, everybody <laughs> on this podcast, what will you be famous for? Spreading love in the world. Angela Lee, thank you so much for being on this show. And also before everyone leaves, I want to let everyone know that along with Angela's information, we're also going to have resources for suicide prevention and mental health in the show notes of this episode. So that way people can access them and learn more and help spread awareness about what is going on and the different ways that we can uh, fight the disease that is uh, depression and anxiety and uh, desired suicide. So, Angela, again, thank you for being on the show. This has been such a beautiful interview. I'm so happy we got to do this. Uh, wishing you a fantastic week ahead. And same to you and all of your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast releases bi-weekly on Fridays. To attend one of our networking events, visit the registration link in the show notes or go to www.mrthrive.com. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Email chaz at mrthrive.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.